you take out your Bibles with me and we'll read for uh, read Romans 9 starting at verse 30. It's on page 1120 if you're using the Bibles from the pews. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it is if it were works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written. See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law, so Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses describes in this way the righteousness that is by the law. The man who does these things will live by them, but the righteousness that is by faith says Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the deep? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith we are proclaiming. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can we call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. I shared with you all last week that I, um, I love this time of year. This is my favorite time of the year. It's my favorite time to live in New Jersey. Uh, we have been here for eight years now, and this is the time of year that I look forward to the most. This is the time when I love to go outside Uh, It's not too hot, it's not too cold, it's like Mama Bear's porridge, it's, right, Mama Bear has the the good porridge, am I right about that? I always get confused on which bear has the the right porridge, but anyway, I love this time of year because of the weather, I love this time of year, I love this time of year because of the colors, and I I mentioned that last week, how uh, this is something where 
Uh, I've never lived in an area where the leaves of the trees are as vibrant as they are in this area. And so just last week, uh, I picked up my daughter from, from school, and she and my son and I, we took a trip to the Closter Nature Center. And uh, the Closter Nature Center is this, this wonderful area where you could go. We spent time just walking through the trees, uh, just spent some time just taking it all in. We took a lot of pictures and that sort of thing. Uh, and then we went back to the nature center. They have like a little, it's like a little house, a little place where they have all kinds of animals that you can go in and you can see. And the lady that was working there, she kind of helped us and was, you know, kind of introducing us to the different animals, the birds and the, the ferrets and I don't know whatever else there was. But what was interesting was she mentioned this, this one frog, <clears throat> this one frog. She said, here's the thing about this frog. This frog now lives with us. This frog lives, you know, in this building with us. We feed this frog. But what we've discovered is that you, we have to be careful. We can't just leave the food there for the frog to eat. Because if we just leave as much food as the frog wants to eat, literally, literally, the frog will eat and eat and eat until it pops. Like, literally pops. And she said, the reason for this is because, and then she, this kind of got depressing. I'm trying to have a you know, fun afternoon with my family. And she, t- she talks about how in the wild, the reality is that most animals are just struggling for survival. I mean, it's just generally speaking, an animal dies because it, it doesn't have enough nutrients. It doesn't make it. It's survival of the fittest. And so most creatures are just trained. They just are constantly, constantly going after nutrients, constantly going after food that will keep them alive, and so then with this frog who's so trained to do that, doesn't realize that if it just keeps going, just keeps going, just keeps going, it'll pop. Today we are continuing in our series on the book of Romans, and the book of Romans is a letter that was written in the 50s AD, about 20, 30 years after the life and ministry of Jesus, and the apostle Paul is writing this letter to the early Christian communities in the city of Rome. And what we've seen as we've gone over this, we've been going through this letter for months now, and the theme of this series is good news. Because what Paul wants to drive home, what he wants to articulate to these early Christian communities is that there is good news, that that God, the God who created all things, has good news for us. And as we come to this part of the letter, we come to, to Romans chapter 10, really, in many respects, we come to the very climax of the letter. Now, there are other places in Romans that we've already come to that are very climactic. They are large peaks that the the book is building towards. There are are peaks in the book of Romans which very much sum up what his message is all about. And this is another place where he sums it all up. But this is, in many respects, the climax of of the book of Romans, and, and so it, it's, it answers this question for us, what is the good news? What is the good news? And, and this really, what we're going to see here today, and of course, I try to do this virtually every week, but this week, it's re- very succinct here in terms of what is Christianity about? What, like, what If we we're going to sum up, what is Christianity about? And there are a number of different ways that you can do that, a number of different ways in which the Bible itself does that, but Paul, as he comes to this climactic moment, the theme that emerges from this chapter, Romans 10, about what is the good news, and here's, here's simply what it is. 
You cannot save yourself. Salvation comes from God. If you just want to boil Christianity down to one bumper sticker, one tweet, it's that you cannot save yourself. Salvation comes from God. Now here's the problem. The problem is most of us spend every day, just about every minute, every second of every day trying to save ourselves. That's the problem. Most of us spend most of our day, every day, every minute, every second of our day trying to save ourselves. Now, okay, save, salvation, right? I said salvation comes from God. That's such a churchy word, right? Salvation. Who uses the word salvation outside of the church, right? So we we kind of need to unpack that a little bit. And and, and as we unpack that, before I do that, (coughs) before I kind of explain what I think salvation is, I just want to say, listen, you you do it all the time. You're you're trying to save yourself all the time. You're doing it all the time. I'll give you an example. When um, When you go to the doctor, you're trying to save yourself. I'm fighting a cold, as you can tell, eating lots of blueberries, apparently has antioxidants or something like that. Salvation is what I'm after. When you apply to go to college, and you apply to a bunch of different colleges, more than likely what you're trying to do is procure salvation for yourself. When you try to close that deal at work, when you try to sign that new client, when you enter into a new relationship with someone, oftentimes what leads you to go into that relationship is you're trying to save yourself. When you pick up your morning coffee, you're trying to save yourself. Some of you are like, amen, that's true. You're like, yes, I am dead until I have my coffee. You see, there are so many things that we do. Everything that we do every day, every minute, we are trying to save ourselves. So what what is salvation? How are we going to define what salvation is? And again, there are a number of ways you can define this. The Bible defines it in different ways. The truth is, though, most religious Most of the definitions we think of when we think about salvation are these religious definitions, and these religious definitions, uh, well, they they tend to, truthfully, what they tend to do is use language that then has to be explained, right? So it uses words that then you have to explain anyways. Um, Or religious definitions of salvation tend to include the answer to salvation, not simply the content of what salvation is. So I want to try to what, what is this? What is salvation? And I'm gonna, just going to put it very simply in these terms. Here's what it is for a person to be saved. A person who is saved is a person whose worth and identity, as well as their pleasure and their joy, are secure. A person who is saved is a person whose Worth and identity and their joy and their pleasure are secure. And what we need to see here, and what Paul's going to pack for us here, is that the problem is we, we all try to procure salvation ourselves. We try to bring this upon ourselves. We try to procure our worth and our identity. We try to procure our pleasure 
and our joy when it comes only from God. But, but this is what we do. We try to do it ourselves, and there are a number of different ways in which we do this. One of the ways in which we try to procure our own salvation, our worth and our identity and our joy and our pleasure is through religion. And that's primarily what Paul is addressing in this passage. He's addressing those, he is addressing those who are seeking to procure their salvation through their religion. This is essentially what he's getting at in chapter 9, verses uh, 30 30 through 32. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. And when, when Paul talks about works, he really means religion. I mean, that's a little bit of an anachronistic term. But, but in terms of our, the way we use that word, that's what he means, religion. And for him, what that meant was is that they were able to procure their salvation through their religious works and and for them in in that context it was things like circumcision circumcision was a religious work it was certain dietary laws that they followed Uh, they would be involved in certain religious ceremonies so on and so forth and the idea was that through practicing these works practicing this religion that it would procure salvation for them now Primarily in this context, what Paul's dealing with is individuals. Again, remember, I broke salvation down into two kind of categories. There's your worth and your identity, and then there's your joy and your pleasure. And for for the people he's dealing with, what they were trying to procure mainly was their worth and their identity through their religious works. They're trying to procure their worth and their identity, not so much their joy and their pleasure. I think that should be rather obvious from the fact that circumcision generally is not pleasurable right? Circumcision is not something, oh, that's going to make me so happy. So they weren't participating in their religious practices so much to procure uh, joy and pleasure as much as their worth and their identity. And that's why Paul uses the word righteousness. He talks about they're trying to obtain their righteousness. And what righteousness is really talking about is that dimension of salvation that deals with our worth and our identity. And in particular, it's a question of whether or not our worth and our identity is right before God. Am I right before God? Does God see me as valuable? Does God see me as having worth? And if he does, then I am, I'm righteous. I'm right with him. And so Paul, in one sense, actually applauds them. He talks about how they are zealous for God. So, he, you know, at least they're trying, to, they're trying to find their worth and their identity, at least on the surface, in God. Their object is God. But what he's saying is, is that they're trying, to get, they're trying to get God to value them through what they do. Now, there's, there's debates in, in sort of New Testament scholarship today about whether or not the first century Jews were trying to earn their salvation or simply maintain their saved status. This is these kind of debates that go on in New Testament circles. In other words, the traditional sort of Protestant approach has been that they were trying to earn their salvation. And, and now there's some scholarship that's saying, no, no, they're not trying to earn their right status before God. They, they, were, they were right before God on the basis of God's grace, but they had to maintain it. They had to maintain their right status 
by doing these religious works. And so these are some debates that go on in New Testament scholarship. I think, I don't really see why it makes a difference practically, because really it's a little bit like saying this. What's the difference between me saying to my wife before we got married, if I said something like, hey, I will marry you if you do X, Y, and Z. Or if I said, hey, I'll marry you right now out of grace. But if you don't do X, Y, and Z, I'll divorce you. I mean, in the end, what really is the difference? It's still a matter of it being up to them. So whether they're trying to earn their right status before God or maintain their righteous status before God, what this is suggesting, what Paul's saying that they thought and what they were trying to do is through their religion to procure that right status, to procure their worth and their value. And again, what he's saying is the problem is, look, it can't come from what you do. Salvation comes from God. But isn't it true? Isn't it true that we often will try and find our worth and our identity through our religious performance? Isn't it easy for us to, to take, <coughs> excuse me, to take that approach? Right? So here's signs. I'll give you a sign that you perhaps are trying to procure your right status before God through your religious activities. If you skip church, do you feel guilty? You skip church, you just feel so guilty, right? And if that's you, you you feel guilty for skipping church, that is a sign, that is a sign that you're trying to procure salvation through your religion. How about if you come to church and you come regularly And you notice all the people who don't. And you're kind of like, what is wrong with those people? Why don't they come to church? And you feel a little bit superior to them? That's a sign that you're trying to procure your salvation through your religion, trying to procure your religious identity through your works, right? If you you feel guilty because you're not going to be able to make it to work day (laughs) coming up. Or you feel really proud that you're going to be there on work day. Right? Then that, that is an, an indication that you are seeking to procure your salvation, your right status before God, through your works. <clears throat> now, what's interesting, of course, is that you can also try to procure your religion, or you can use your religion, for the sake of joy and pleasure. For a lot of us, that's not the way it is. For a lot of us, coming to church is really not about our joy and our pleasure. In fact, the reality is there are probably some of us here today who like coming to church about as much as you'd like to be circumcised. But you come because you think it's the right thing to do. You come because you're like, well, that's what good people do, right? Back in the day, they got circumcised. <laughs> today, we go to church. So it's not whether you like it or not. You're not here to procure your, your, you're not after your joy and your pleasure. You're after your right status with God. And that's primarily what I think Paul was dealing with in the first century religious communities. But religion can also be yours for joy and pleasure. Like, in other words, I mean, maybe you don't really feel guilty about skipping church, okay? That's bad. But when you come to church, man, it, it better deliver, right? So a, a sign that you're trying to procure your joy and your pleasure through church is that, is that when you come, right, it's about what you experience, or you need, to, you need to have a wonderful experience of church and, and the programs need to feed you and they need, to make, they need to make you feel good and they need to lift you up. But when you go to church, you want to come out of church feeling great, right? 
that's just another way of trying to procure your salvation. You're trying to procure your joy and your pleasure. You may not really care how often you come and you don't feel guilty, but boy, when you come, you better feel good at the end of church, right? That's why you're coming. These are signs that we are trying to procure our salvation through our religion. Of course, then there's other ways. There's so many other ways in which we try to procure our own salvation. We can do it through religion. We can do it through our career, right? Career is another way in which we often seek to procure our salvation. And and again, we'll, we'll look at these two different sides of it, our worth and our identity. Here is a sign. Here is a sign that perhaps... You are trying to procure your worth and your value and your identity through your career, right? Here's a sign. Either you love telling people what you do for a living or you hate telling people what you do for a living. Now, if you're indifferent, you don't really care if any but what you do, then you're, that's probably not an area where you're trying to procure your salvation. But if you, if you love telling people, right? Right? You like, and, and, you know, you like to pretend you're humble, so you don't like to tell people about how big the department is that you now oversee. But you kind of hope that maybe your wife mentions it. You know, you kind of hope that maybe, you know, somebody happens to hear about it, right? Because you've got that kind of humility, right? So you just, you just love telling people. You love people finding out about what you do for a living or, or you hate telling people. You hate them finding out because the reality is you're insecure about it. You're insecure about it, and you'd rather people not know what it is that you do for a living. In either either case, that's a sign that perhaps your worth and your identity is in your career, your your worth and your value. Of course, then on the other side, see what's interesting, on the other side, you can have people who are trying to procure their salvation through their career, but it's not their worth and their identity they're after. It's their joy and their pleasure. And here's a sign that perhaps you're trying to procure your salvation through your career, your joy and your pleasure through your career. Here's a sign. You just are never happy in your job. I mean, you're always going from one job to the next, next to the next. I mean, you don't really care if people know what you do. I mean, that doesn't really matter to you. What matters to you, do you like doing it? Can you stand being there? And that, that, that's what's important to you, right? So for you, it's not, you know, mama, don't let your babies grow up to be cowboys. Let them be doctors and lawyers and such. Look, man, if they want to be a cowboy, let them be a cowboy. If that's where they find joy, if that's where they find happiness, then let them be a cowboy. Because it's not about, you know, you know being, being a doctor or being a lawyer. It's about what do you enjoy doing what you're doing. But oftentimes, people who that's, that's their way of living, one of the ways you'll know is you're going from job to job. So your, your career, that's, that's a way in which you can Seek to procure your salvation, your religion, your career. <clears throat> and, then, and then, of course, just stuff. We use stuff. Stuff's just, a, I could, it's just a catch-all term for kind of everything else, right? Just, just stuff. We, we try to procure salvation through stuff. You try to procure salvation through the new house, the new car, through going shopping, through the vacations, it's how you try to procure your salvation. And again, for you, procuring your salvation through stuff can come in on two different sides. Either you're, you're trying to procure your worth and your value, or you're trying to procure 
your joy and your pleasure. And what's interesting is that on the surface, it can look exactly the same, right? So here, here's what I mean by this. So one, one guy, he, he buys the bigger house, okay? He buys the bigger house. Now, why does he buy the bigger house? He buys the bigger house because his, his old house, he's just cramped. Like there's no space. And he, you know, he and his wife are always fighting in the bathroom over the sink, you know? It's just like, oh, it's just, it's horrible. And it's, they're just so crammed. So, so we need more space, right? So for that person who's trying to procure their salvation through their house, it's about their joy and about their pleasure. But then you can have another individual who, who they buy the bigger house, and it's not because they're crammed. It's not because they don't have a space in their old house. It's because they're embarrassed about their old house. They're embarrassed. They, they, they don't want people to know that, that that's where they live. I mean, they're perfectly happy there. They don't really need more space. But they're embarrassed that that's where they live. See, both of these people are trying to procure their salvation through their stuff, but it takes on two different, takes on two different forms. Try to procure salvation through our stuff. Try to procure salvation through our friends. Did you know we can do that? We can try to procure our salvation through our friends. And again, it can operate on, on, both, on both sides of these, uh, right? Uh, I mean, maybe for you, it's about your joy and your pleasure. So for you, you, you need to be with your friends, right? I mean, being with your friends is what gives you joy. That's what makes you happy. That's what makes you fulfilled. You love being with your friends. For others of you, you don't know if you really enjoy being with your friends. It's, it's not a matter of being with your friends. It's who your friends are. That's that's what matters to you. Your worth and your value comes through who your friends are. You love to post those Facebook pictures with you and somebody famous, right? You love to post those, so people will know. I mean, even though you never really talk to them, but they know you, so you call them your friend and post them on Facebook, right? So so for you, your worth and your value comes through who you know, right? You, 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 look, you, you love, you just feel good walking out of your rich friend's house. You just feel good about it. You, you, you love in the grocery store. When you, you strike up a conversation, you know, with that ultra fit, beautiful, successful PTA mom that lives in your, I mean, and, you, and you're having a conversation when she's your friend, you love that. You love that, that your worth and your identity comes through, through who you know. You see, you see, friends, we could go on and on and on and on about the ways in which we try to procure our salvation through religion, through our careers, through stuff, through our friends. So many ways in which we could do this. Now, <coughs> here's the problem. What, what, is, what is the problem with this approach to procuring your salvation? Here's what it is. It doesn't work. That's the problem. The problem is it, it, it doesn't work, right? It doesn't work. When you try to procure your own salvation, it just doesn't work, right? And you try to procure your salvation, and here's some kinds of things that, that are signs of a person who's trying to procure their salvation. They, they live in this world of if-onlys, right? Do you, do you live in the world of, of if-onlys? Oh, you know, if-only... If only I, you know, if only I hadn't quit that job 
30 years ago. If only I'd worked harder when I was in college. If only I hadn't stopped taking piano lessons, right? If only. We live in this sort of if onlys. You see, when, when you try to procure your salvation, you live in this world of if onlys. When you try to procure your salvation, what you discover is that it is always incomplete and fleeting. The salvation that you come to experience is incomplete and, and fleeting. It's, it's incomplete in the sense that there is always, there's, there's always another hump to get over, right? And if you, if you get over one hump and you thought that was going to be it, you discover, no, there's another hump. Right? I, I like to say it, for the person who's trying to procure their salvation, it's like we are constantly waiting for life to begin. Right? Constantly waiting for life to begin. Right? So, you know, when you're, you're in middle school, you're like, man, I can't wait till I can drive. Once I can finally drive, then life will begin. Right? And then you get to high school and you get your driver's license, you drive around, oh man, I can't wait till I'm out of my parents' house and, and I can go to college, right? Then life will begin. And then you go to college. Oh, this is great. Oh yeah, but man, but I can't wait till I can get, I don't have any money, man. I need to get a job. So you go and you get out of college and you, and you get a job, right? But, but then when you finally get that job, now you're like, well, now, now, now I, I really, I'd like to get married. I want to find somebody if I can get married. See, once I get married, then life will begin. So then you get married. You find that perfect son and you get married and you're like, uh, oh, but wait, wait, maybe no. Actually, once we have kids, oh, I've always wanted to have kids. Once I have kids and I have a family and a picket white fence in the backyard, oh, then. And then you, you get the kids, the pig of white feds. You're like, oh my gosh, when they finally got a diapers, right? And then, then life will begin, right? And, and, and then, oh my gosh, when they can finally, I'm always driving them from soccer to ballet to piano lessons. When they can finally drive themselves, oh my gosh, the freedom, then life will begin. Oh gosh, once they get out of the house, honey, once it's just the two of us, again, alone, then life will begin. Right? So then the kids move out, it's the two of you. He's like, honey, just 10 more years till retirement. 10 more years till retirement. And then life will begin. And then you retire and you're too old to do anything. Right? I mean, we spend our entire lives waiting for life to begin because it's incomplete. It's incomplete and it's fleeting. Let me just apply it to a couple of these areas that I've I've done it sort of generally here, but applying it to these different areas that I've already mentioned. So stuff, here's the problem with stuff. Stuff does not work. It cannot procure your salvation. It's incomplete and it's fleeting. We've talked about this before with stuff. Here's one of the problems with stuff, right, is that with stuff, the more stuff that you have does not make you happier. It just makes feeling normal more expensive, right? That's what, We've talked about this before, right? Having more just makes feeling normal more expensive. So you, you get the bigger house, right? You get the bigger house because you got the promotion. So you, you, get, you get the bigger house and initially, initially you are happier, right? Initially you're happier, but then actually over time, your happiness level goes right back to what it was when you had your other house. The problem is the house payments don't go back. So now you're just paying more to feel normal. And so you, well, I got to get more. I just got to get more. I got, I got to get another promotion, right? I've got to keep, I've got to get higher and higher and higher and higher until you pop. Like the frog that I met at the Closer Nature Center. Right? I mean, are we really any different? 
we're like every other creature, just struggling, struggling to procure life, to procure salvation. And then, and then if we're lucky enough to get it, we pop. Stuff, that's what happens with stuff. Again, if your career, if your career is what you're looking to to procure salvation, it'll be filled with if onlys and what ifs. If only I hadn't quit. If only I'd worked harder. And it'll be filled with what ifs too, right? Because now if, if things are going well for you, then it's, well, what if, what if something changes, right? What if, what if uh, the CEO, they replace the CEO and, and they move the company in a completely different direction and I get laid off? What if some new invention comes out that, takes, that makes my entire industry completely irrelevant? If onlys and what ifs. What about your friends? What if you're trying to procure your salvation through your friends? <clears throat> Here's what happens if you, if you try to procure your salvation through your friends. Either your friends will never be good enough for you or you will suffocate them. They'll never be good enough for you, right? Because, I mean, you, you need them to be perfect because they're kind of your God, right? So you need them to always be there. They always need to be there for you because if they're not there for you, what's gonna happen, right? You got nowhere to go. So they have to save you and so your friends will never be good enough for you if you're trying to procure your salvation to your friends or you'll suffocate them because you'll demand more out of them than they can possibly give. That's what happens if you try to procure your salvation through your friends. Here's what happens if you try to procure your salvation through religion. If you try to procure your salvation through religion, here's what happens. Either you or the church is never good enough. If you try to procure your salvation through the church, either you're not good enough, right? You're not good enough, and so you live with this constant sense of guilt. You don't come to church enough. You don't serve enough. You don't, you don't give enough. You don't help with the children's ministry enough. You don't sing loudly enough. You don't pray enough. You don't read your Bible enough. You're not good enough. If your salvation is coming through your religion, then oftentimes it's either you're not good enough or the church isn't good enough. The music's too loud. The music's too soft. They do too many hymns. They don't do enough hymns. They repeat too many lines. They don't repeat enough lines. The sermons are too long. They're too short. He should use more humor. He shouldn't use humor. This is, this is church. I'm not getting what I need out of it. The children's programs aren't enough for my kids. Right? It's never enough. See, see, if you're trying to find your salvation through your religion, either you're not good enough or the church, the church isn't good enough. Friends, here's why we shouldn't try to procure salvation on our own because it doesn't work. And so Paul wants us to see the heart of the Christian faith. And that is that salvation comes from God. The very heart of this passage, the very heart of the book of Romans, the very heart of the Christian faith Romans 10, 9 says this, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's simply through faith. It's simply through faith in God. 
It's faith in the God who has revealed himself in the person of Jesus. Because in the person of Jesus, he deals with both our worth and our identity and our joy and our pleasure. You see this? On the cross, Jesus addresses the problem of our worth and our identity. On the cross, what we discover is that he died to forgive us of our sin so that our worth and our value isn't based on anything that we do. It's based entirely on his grace. Our worth, our identity, our value is based simply on the fact that God loves us. And so you don't have to find your identity through your career. You don't have to find your identity through your religious performance. You don't have to find your identity through who you know. You don't have to find your identity through anything other than the grace of God who loves you. If God thinks you're valuable, why does it matter what anybody else thinks? On the cross, Jesus died that our worth and our value might be in God. And through the resurrection, you see, Through the resurrection, our joy and our pleasure is secure because he has conquered death. He has showed us that he is the one who has power over life. And so Paul basically, in this this chapter, basically what he does is he's just ransacks the Old Testament scriptures to show everybody that this is always always what the the Bible has been pointing to. The Old Testament scriptures have always been pointing to this reality that salvation comes from God and always pointing to this reality that it would be fulfilled in Jesus. In verses 30 through 33, he quotes from the, the book of Isaiah. And in this passage, Isaiah is prophesying. This is hundreds of years before Christ prophesying this time when the temple would be rebuilt. The temple, the place where God's presence comes and and there's this passage that talks about he says that there will be some who won't get it and they will they will stumble over the stone right the foundational stone of this temple but then of course in Jesus's day in first century Judaism many had come to see that that stone that he was talking about that people would stumble over was the Messiah it was the Messiah the one who would come with the, with the embodiment of God, God himself would come in and through the Messiah. And of course, Paul's saying that, that's Jesus. It's pointing to Jesus. <clears throat> then he goes and he quotes <clears throat> chapter Deuteronomy, chapter, or excuse me, Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30 is this passage in the Old Testament where, where Moses is looking ahead and he's saying, he's saying, here's what's gonna happen. He's saying, Israel, if you obey me, you're gonna be blessed. If you disobey me, you're gonna be cursed. And you're going to disobey me, and so you're going to be cursed. But then he goes on to say, but then God is going to come, and God is going to renew his covenant with you because he loves you, and God is going to come, and he's going to write his law on your hearts. And, and, and let me read to you. Let me just read you a passage from Deuteronomy chapter 30, and, and I just want you to, to think about whether or not this sounds anything like what you hear Paul saying in this chapter in Romans. This is Deuteronomy chapter 30. This, this is what he says. He says, now that I am commanding you to, what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. He's saying, what I'm commanding you today is not difficult for you. It's not beyond your reach. It is not up in heaven so that you have to ask who will ascend to heaven to get it and proclaim proclaim it to us so we may obey it. Nor is it beyond the sea 
so that you have to ask who will cross to the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so we may obey it. No, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you may obey it. Of course, what Paul does, as he so often does, he takes a central passage from the Jewish scriptures and he puts Jesus right in the middle of it. He says, this is what this has always been pointing to. So, of course, how does, he, how does he put Jesus in the middle of this? He says, Moses described it in this way. The righteousness that is by the law, the man who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, and now he quotes from Deuteronomy, this exact passage. But now Jesus is going to be in the middle of this. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus is what Moses was talking about this time when God would come, God, you don't have to pull him down. You don't have to reach out for him. He comes to you. Paul's not done. He, gets, he just gets excited. He just keeps going. <clears throat> Chapter 13, he quotes from the book of Joel. Uh, Joel prophesying about the time when the spirit would come and bring renewal. Then in verse 15, he goes on. He quotes again from Isaiah, a passage in Isaiah when it talks about uh, how in the time in which Yahweh will, will return, that missionaries will go out and they will proclaim this. This is what he's talking about here in, verses, in verse 15, where he says, how can they preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. He's saying that is being fulfilled in the early church. Paul's referring to himself here. He's saying Isaiah talked about this time when the Lord would return and when the Lord would return and the, the good news would go out and the missionaries would go out. He's saying, can't you see that's what's happening? That's what's happening right now because Jesus has come. So Paul labors, he ransacks the Old Testament to demonstrate that in the person of Jesus, salvation has come. Friends, here's what happens. Here's what happens when salvation comes from God. Here's what will happen in your life. Here's what will happen. You will discover there are no more humps to get over. Those moments when your faith is at its deepest, there's no more humps. I know this. I remember when I first became a believer, there have been those times in my life, there are seasons in my life when my faith is just, just grounded so firmly and, and one of those moments was really when I first came to know the Lord. I was about 12 years old. <laughs> and I'll never forget it. I'll never forget it because I remember saying to myself when I was 12, I was saying, Kevin, you have your entire life ahead of you and you already have everything you need. You already have everything that you need. Now, as, as we sung this morning, I am prone to wander, right? So my faith will will oscillate, it'll, it'll go back and forth. There'll be times when I'm back to try to, to win my own salvation, right? But, but no, when, when we rest in faith, when we rest in it, there's, no more, there's nowhere to go. You have everything that you need. Your worth and your identity are secure. If God thinks you're cool, who cares what anybody else thinks? 
Friends, when you, through faith, believe that salvation comes from God, here's, here's just another one I've been thinking about. Decisions will become less crippling. I don't know how about for, for you, but for me, when my faith is weak, decisions are crippling, right? Especially those big ones. Ever had that throughout your life? You know, do I take the job? You know, do I, do I marry the girl? Do I, you know, do I whatever, whatever it is. And, and decision, do, you know, which school do I go to? Oh my gosh, should I go to this school? Should I go to this school? Should I buy this? And, and, and decisions can be crippling. But you see, when our faith rests in God, you can't really make a bad decision. Because even if you do, God will work through it. When we realize that salvation comes from God, decisions become less crippling. <clears throat> and here's what happens. When it, with regards to stuff, we need things less and we enjoy them more. Here's what you'll discover. When your salvation is in God, you will need things less but you will enjoy them more, right? You'll be less picky about what goes on in church, but you'll enjoy it more. You won't care whether we're doing hymns or contemporary songs or preaching long or short. I mean, you, you, it won't matter as much, but you'll enjoy it more, right? You won't, you won't matter as much if you join a community group, right? You know, it's like, you know, we're always trying to find that perfect group, a perfect community group. Just the right people, just the right dynamic, you know? People who don't talk too much and don't talk too little, right? People who open up their hearts but also don't just talk about themselves all the time, right? It's not too small, it's not too big, you know? I'm looking for mama bear's porridge in my community group. Listen, when your faith is in Jesus, when you're resting in that, you won't care as much about that. You won't be as picky and you'll enjoy whatever it is that you're in more. You'll need it to be a certain way less, and you'll enjoy it more. For religion, that'll be the case. For stuff, right? <clears throat> you, won't need, you won't need the big TV. You won't need to watch stuff, but you'll enjoy it more, right? You'll love watching the things that you watch, but you won't need to. You will really enjoy that cup of coffee that you don't need as much anymore. You'll really be excited about that vacation. That'll be great. But if it doesn't work out this year, that's okay too. You'll need it less. You'll enjoy it more. Because see, here's, here's what we're really talking about here. We need idols. We enjoy blessings. Are the things in your life idols or are they blessings? The way you can tell is, I need it, I need it. That's an idol. You're trying to get your salvation through it. Or is it a blessing? I love it, I enjoy it, but I don't need it. When salvation comes from God, we'll discover that we need things less, but we enjoy them more. Hopefully what you'll see in this is that when we say that salvation comes from God, that we don't procure our own salvation, that does not mean that we're passive. There's no passivity in this. In fact, it's incredibly active. Faith is incredibly active. In fact, I don't, I'd argue it's almost more active than doing because it's a perspective that you take on every second, every minute of the day. Faith, what is it? Faith is trusting in what is uncertain and being thankful for what is secure. That's what faith is. In everything that you have, right? The uncertainties that you face when you walk out the door, in faith you trust that God is with you and the things that are secure 
the things that you have, you are you're thankful for. <clears throat> Friends, let me ask you this morning. What are you looking to for salvation today? What was it when I went through that list? Was it religion? Was it your career? Was it your friends? Was it stuff? Was it something I left off? You're not off the hook because you know what it is. Now, what is it? What is it that you're looking to to find salvation? Friends, the reason we come to church, this is why we come to church, folks. It is to remind ourselves that salvation comes from God. This is what Paul alludes to actually here in verse 17. He says, consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. You see, faith comes through hearing the gospel. Faith comes through hearing this over and over again. This is what we need every Sunday. This is what we need is to gather together. We need to gather together so that we can be reminded of where our salvation comes from because it is so easy for us, isn't it? It is so easy for us to slip into this mindset of me needing to save myself. And so that's why we gather here together. That's why we study the scriptures. That's why we take communion. The ushers would please come forward. Now we're going to take communion. Go ahead and come forward, guys. What is communion? Communion is an opportunity to remind ourselves that salvation comes from God. Communion, yeah, guys, go ahead, come on forward. Salvation, it it, it reminds us, communion reminds us that salvation comes from God. What what it is, is it is a, it is a, a visible, tangible expression of the gospel. We are reminded of what Christ has done for us, that he died he died to forgive us of our sin, that our worth and our value might be Him, in Him, that He rose from the grave. He rose from the grave that, that we could find our joy and our pleasure in Him. As we take communion, friends, this is an opportunity for you to, to turn to God and say, God, forgive me. Forgive me of being so foolish as to looking to this or that to find my salvation. This is an opportunity once again to say, God, you alone are the one who can save. Let's bow our heads in prayer.